Hello and welcome once again to Yester Ladies. I'm Dana. And I'm Heather. Heather, what are we talking about today? Well, Dana, we are talking about the <laughs> Fille du Roi. Very nicely done. Uh-huh. We were just having a, a bit of a, a, I don't even know, a schmazzle about how to pronounce <laughs> the Fille du Roi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep doing that because I can't roll my R's, so I'm just going to snort like a pig and make it sound like I'm, I don't know, a Klingon, as you said a second ago. That's Dana's pathetic attempt oh. <laughs> to uh, her Anglophone, her pathetic Anglophone attempt. Well, okay, but the sad thing is we're talking about this French-Canadian topic, and the very sad thing is we're struggling to pronounce French words, which is ridiculous because we both have a quantity of French-Canadian heritage ourselves. My grandfather was French. He spoke French growing up. As was my grandmother, who right? we covered in the Grandmother podcast. Uh, and I have multiple French-Canadian relatives mm. who live in Quebec, speak French, are French-Canadian, and here we are struggling to pronounce roi. I do have to say, you do it much better than I do. <laughs> I, I was practicing rolling my R's. I this. can't roll my R's. It's, it's going to be sporadic, though. Dear listeners, we, we, <laughs> I make no claims that I will be able to get through the entire podcast rolling the R's. All right. So. Well, we'll both try our best. We'll try. But from me, you're going to get more of a... <laughs> and that you'll have to deal with that. Um, <laughs> despite years of French in school. <laughs> despite years we of French in school. Yep. Yes. And we always... My mom and I always used to make fun of my dad because he had... he. You think I'm bad with the French <laughs> accent. Um, he's terrible. He's just, he's got the worst French accent you've ever heard. Um, but uh, I'm sad to say that apparently mine isn't much better. <laughs> it's really sad. I have sung art songs in French and done a decent job. So I don't know why I have such a hard time pronouncing French words properly. Well, if you'd like, you could sing your commentary in this podcast <laughs> and it will be a, a half musical podcast. I'm not sure that our listeners would enjoy that as much as you think they might. <laughs> it might get old. It might get real old real fast. So let's just plow ahead All right. with our regular spoken word uh, podcast. No lyric. <laughs> All right. Well, Heather, who were... The Fidu Roch. <laughs> I'm not going to get through it like that. That's awesome. All right. They were, uh, in English, known as the King's Daughters. Oh, I could have said that. Right. Well, you could, so you could be our, our English namer and I could be the I'll be French the English namer. translator. Right. right. So every time I say Fidu Roch. King's Daughters. King's Daughters. We can just interject. Uh, and so these were approximately 800 unmarried French women who were selected to immigrate to New France, which is now Quebec. 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 Belle Provence. Belle Provence. There we go. <laughs> if I do it like Lumiere, then it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you have to get like the sneer, like the one, like, <laughs> the, the cheesy French laugh. <laughs> <laughs> All of our French oh, listeners God. are going to hate they're, us. <laughs> they're, you're just pulling your hair out right now. We apologize. Yeah. It's like the worst of Ontario's Anglophone stereotypes. It so really is. We're sorry. <laughs> um, so these ladies were selected to immigrate to New France. They're coming to what will one day be Canada. And they were subsidized by French King Louis XIV. This was going on between 1663 and 1673. And we should say the reason that all of these unmarried young French women, and they were roughly between the ages of about 16 and late 20s, I guess. Yeah. I read somewhere that the average was 25. That seems high to me. Because mm. I, I think there were a lot of teenagers, right? Yeah, I was seeing 24, 25. But some of them, some of the ladies were up to about 30. Okay. So. So it was kind of a range. Yeah, I'd say kind of 15 to 30-ish. There we go. Mm -hmm. Um, So, of course, the reason that um, 
French, uh, the French settlement uh, in North America needed all of these women was because there was a complete lack. Of, well, I mean, that's not actually true. <laughs> Literally, there were plenty of First Nations ladies, yes. but they were not acceptable, apparently, to the, the, the white Frenchmen who uh, were trying to colonize this land. Um, these guys needed white wives. They needed French, <laughs> Catholic white wives so i'm i don't know why i'm beating my <laughs> palm so uh, racism <laughs> yep. i actually have a subtitle on here going racism yep <laughs> Just pretty much to to expand that point yep so now of course i i do want to interject and say that a lot of people and um as we mentioned previously both of us have french canadian heritage and a lot of people who have french canadian heritage in canada also have some however small amount of first nations um um heritage uh within them because a lot of uh the courier de bois the the um the fur trappers the french young men fur trappers who came over in the first place uh did have relationships with with first nations women um, and some of them did actually marry those women and produced um, uh, mixed race children. Um, and some of those people, of course, became the Métis. Um, but it was really not kind of socially acceptable. It was it was very much frowned upon. And if you wanted to, like, be a good Frenchman and, and help establish the colony, then you needed a, a good white wife (laughs) (laughs) to create a legitimate marriage yes and and legitimate children so yeah absolutely we will get into that the demographics were were shocking interesting very interesting (laughs) i don't know about shocking but very very interesting i guess not shocking (laughs) (laughs) so dramatic they were dramatic disparities (laughs) um yes so like you say these women were brought over to balance the gender imbalance or the the white gender imbalance in the colonies and uh, and to boost the population growth. And today, um, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of North Americans can trace their descendants back to this small group of uh, 800 800 women. women. And some reports I was reading were saying maybe a thousand, but the more official documents we're looking at had it pegged right around 800. So 800 ladies, uh, and sometimes you see them called the mothers of the nation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and really their genetic legacy is, massive in north america so well we're talking about them no spoilers but part of the reason they uh (laughs) they left such a a mark on north america's population is is because of their just prolific (laughs) childbearing (laughs) abilities and we'll get into that (laughs) ladies were fertile myrtles oh they sure were (laughs) or was it fertile marie oh there you go fertile marie i think is more appropriate (laughs) Uh, all right so i have some historical context so to set the scene for you uh of what was going on in new france and the world at this time so we're starting uh way back the french have been in canada since the 1400s they've been for quite a while uh i guess the new world yeah um, as one of the articles we read pointed out a very long time before those stupid pilgrims landed in (laughs) the u.s i'm sorry to our u.s listeners the pilgrims weren't stupid i'm sorry but (laughs) i mean you know our french our french ancestors have been in canada for way longer so quite longer yes there you go you know (laughs) take your mayflower and just do whatever you want with it (laughs) (laughs) so uh there was this long stretch 
where France is colonizing the new world. Uh, these colonies were business ventures. So it's companies usually based in France um, bringing over workers basically. And so the whole time I was doing this research, I was picturing like Fort McMurray <laughs> in Canada, <laughs> which is a big oil town and uh, mining town. And the workers are predominantly men because it's a very male dominated industry. And um, there are many fewer women in that city than, than sort of your average Canadian city or like an oil rig. I was thinking of an oil yeah. rig where it's just so <laughs> predominantly just male. Men just covered in oil. There's nowhere to go. <laughs> Not Not a nothing to in do. sight. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so God, if you were one thought. of the few women on an oil rig you would be part of this very small and i don't know very uh paid attention to minority <laughs> it could either be really good or really bad for i feel you. like that's a position i just would not <laughs> want to be in at all i thought about us i was like yeah i would do it for a season and dana would be like no 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 oil rig. that is the difference between us <laughs> <laughs> um so i do just want to kind of interject and and say so um this colonization of of New France, as they were as they were calling it at the time, was they were trying to get settlers, like people who would establish themselves and and start farms and start communities and cities and, and grow from there and establish a colony. Um, of course, when we talk about the fact that the French settlers had been in Canada since um, you know the 1400s or whatever, those were more um, like I mentioned before, the Courier de Bois, the fur trappers. Um, who, and fishermen as well. Uh, there were quite a few fishermen who would kind of come over mm -hmm. for the summer months to North America to fish and then go back to, mm -hmm. to Europe, um, afterwards for the, for the winter. Um, of course the Courier de Bois, I think they were more kind of permanent from what I remember from history class, but they weren't, they weren't settled, you know, they were, they were traveling all over the place and these were, um, these were men who were mixing quite a bit with, with native populations and kind of getting to know them. Um, but they weren't settling. They weren't really starting communities, um, which is kind of what the French crown wanted. They wanted a, a toehold in the new world and they wanted a big colony uh, that would grow and grow and, and provide stability and probably armies so that they could, they could expand further and fight those first nations people. <laughs> Um, so yeah, up until, up until this point, there's been kind of more scattered, um, men hanging around and now the, the plan is to try to get them married off and, and having babies. <laughs> yeah, it was very resource focused at the mm. beginning, um, more like exploration and more about the profit of the companies. And you're right. It was really the crown and the church. So the, the French Catholic church was really pushing for a more settled experience and the companies had agreed they've been allowed the access to the resources in new france in exchange for settling the land and they basically weren't keeping up their end of the bargain they were mm -hmm. bringing french usually french men in you know sort of stripping the land of its resources making a profit and then not um bringing over anyone to settle they were bringing small numbers of people but it was hard to encourage people to come over to this very desolate very dangerous very cold mm -hmm. land away from their family you would never see them again you know you're leaving everything behind so we can see why it would be a a tough choice. That's a tough sell. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> and men would sign up for uh, a three-year contract. And so they would come to the country, serve their three years, either as a soldier or, or a fisherman or a trapper, this sort of thing, um, trader, explorer. And then they would often go back to France. And I didn't realize there was so much back and forth. Mm, I, yeah. I no, I didn't either. Everyone who made it over <laughs> stayed. Was, stayed and was yeah. not going to do the return journey. But quite a few men were coming back. So they were basically hemorrhaging these these men and it was a lot of turnover. So if you're in the corporate world, there was a lot of, you know, employee turnover, high turnover <laughs> rates in the in the new world. Uh, and so the crown and the church really wanted to stop this. And 
as you mentioned, it was very political. So the British were, um, their population was growing and growing fast. So to the south, the British had hit about 100,000 people, um, whereas the French were uh, barely pushing 1,500. Um, Let me check my notes here. So by 1663, the population of New France was 2,500 and mostly on the north shore of the St. Lawrence River. So if you've traveled to Quebec City or Montreal, the stretch in between those two cities was where most of the French had actually settled. Uh, And the the population skewed one woman for every six men. (laughs) So, you know, if if you were looking to marry, (laughs) the the odds are in your favor. But uh, this meant a lot of single men. A lot of restless single men, so uh, not, not settling down. <laughs> and we know we know that roving gangs of restless single young men are usually spells trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, so in 1665, there were only 70 houses in Quebec City. So we're talking very small scale city, and the census recorded only 45 unmarried females living in the colony. So I don't, and, and I don't know if that's nuns. Or I was just going to say that had to that. I mean, it, if that was the census, it, it had to have included. None. So that was one again. One of the articles we were pointing out was saying like there were right. women, but they were most of them were kind of unmarriageable because you know they were largely native women who these guys were like, well, no, they're not appropriate for settling down. <laughs> and probably these women were like, yeah, I'm not interested. In- <laughs> I was going to say because the native gender balance would have been fairly equal. So- yeah. You know, the native women would have been mostly interested in the native men. Well, and I would feel like, yeah, most most First Nations women probably would have been like, yeah, no, I'm good. I don't. <laughs> you don't want me. Guy. I don't really kind of want this life either. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> um, so there were lots of them, but you know, that was a no go. Um, and then, of course, a lot of the other women. The, yeah, just in general, there weren't other weren't many other white women, but a lot of the white women that were there we're nuns so married to god yeah kind of a no-go there as well (laughs) although i i bet it i bet oh dana i bet it i found a very scandalous um (gasps) reference where they were talking about the um much later we'll get to this where they were encouraging babies to be born so they were offering a pension to families that had children but they had to specify that the children were born to legitimate marriages not nuns or priests and i was like oh snap I love it. There was definitely some naughty nuns. Wedlock, yeah. yeah. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I don't know know why that pleases me so much. I don't know. Very scandalous at the time. I don't know. It's like kind of delightful. (laughs) (laughs) It's titillating. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, all right. So that's the picture in the colony. Um, The women who were there and were not nuns had usually come across their families uh, or, you know, were daughters born in the country. So the colonists in New France recognized the fact that they needed to basically have, quote, import women <laughs> to the colony. Um, and so church groups, um, some landowners, sometimes private groups did sponsor groups of women to come over. Uh, but they were getting, they got 262 women between 1634 and 1663. So that's oh, kind of a 30-year span. You're not getting a lot of women. It was usually 10 women or less every year. So it's just the barest trickle of ladies coming in that the colony is able to lure mm-hmm. <laughs> to yeah. not lure but convince to come across it was just yeah it just wasn't really working and they were kind of realizing the the leaders of the colony both um here in in canada and of course back in france that this just wasn't viable and that the colony you know the attempts at this colony would really collapse especially given the kind of the growing threat i guess of the british mm. um who were populating um and just 
it wasn't sustainable um, and they had to do something to increase the population. Right. So what they did, the solution mm. um, that King Louis XIV and his advisors came up with uh, was, all right, well, if these ladies aren't choosing to go on their own or the colony can't convince them to go over, we'll pay the way for them to go. So we'll select these ladies and we'll basically bankroll their trip over and their dowries. And that is what they did. So this is how we get the fille du roi. Oh, beautifully done. <laughs> that was your best best pronunciation yet. <laughs> I am twisting my French moustache. It's beautiful. <laughs> um, so, um, I just wanted to, to interject again and say... Oh, I was so enthroned by your beautiful pronunciation. I can't remember what I was interjecting to say. <laughs> oh, I know. Okay. Um, there's in some, and actually in one of the sources that we were looking at, even, um, there was a reference to like, oh, some of these women were coming against their will. They were like forced to go, which was not true. And I feel like I kind of had a vague impression before doing all of this research that like, oh yeah, maybe some of them were kind of half forced into this and. Uh, maybe not actually bound and gagged, but kind of like, you know, you have to go. But um, no, that wasn't the case. They all they all made this decision. And I mean, for a lot of them, it was kind of like, well, I'm in pretty desperate straits here. Why not? But uh, they definitely didn't have to. And, you know, kind of there were, you know, other options in France. But um, as, I, you know, we'll get into a lot of these young women were were poor, or most of them, I'd say, were, were fairly poor. A lot of them were from orphan orphanages, um, but nobody was forced into this. It was a decision that all of these women made, um, each on her own steam. So, if there are any rumors about about ladies being forced into this, it is not the case, which is good. It is good. And another um, rumor that we should put to rest is that some of these women were prostitutes. So that all of the women well, were prostitutes, which we don't know. There does seem to, yeah, yeah, there was kind of this. Some of them may have come from that background. Right, like maybe a few of them, our sources said, like, yeah, it's kind of hard to know, like, probably, and again, like, I think, like, the history of prostitution, the history of prostitution, that would be such a good topic. How did this not occur to us before this moment? Anyway, we will 100% do that because I'm already excited about it. I think Heather's putting it on the list this moment. <laughs> it's happening right now. Um, so from what I have read of prostitution there, there's – and even today, the way prostitution exists, I think everybody has this kind of generalized notion that, you know, if you're a prostitute, you're a prostitute full-time and you're just doing that constantly. <laughs> for life. For life. And uh, whereas I think especially throughout history and probably even for now as well, um, it tended to be more like if a woman was kind of – down on her luck she might do it for a little while or just occasionally do it and then maybe she would get other odd jobs um so i mean i feel like just in terms of the number of women who came over and given that they were from poor backgrounds it probably was a decent chance that at least some of them had at one time or another um, um engaged in in prostitution as a way to to pay the bills um but yeah there was this kind of uh, <laughs> the the Roy had um, been accused at different times throughout history, and I think even at the time, uh, or shortly after they came, they were kind of denigrated and and kind of said like, "Oh, they're all whores," you know, like that kind of thing, and which was you know patently not true. It, you know, most of them were poor but legitimate, I guess, um, young women. So the idea that that they were all 
morally bankrupt and <laughs> and the idea that the french government was like rounding up prostitutes, the prostitutes yeah. of paris and shoving them onto boats and paying it's them to go across disease with written prostitutes <laughs> a terrible way to start going. yeah um you know that the idea that that was the method of the government is not at all true um it was far more legitimate and we'll go into the whole sort of screening process oh, of how these pretty interesting yeah it was it was interesting to read about so, all right, uh, I'd like to introduce a character that we'll mention uh, once or twice throughout, Mr. Colbert or oh. Monsieur Colbert, Ooh. which I think we like just because he has the same last name as one well, of our favorite late night TV I guys. mean, I wonder, any relation? <laughs> Perhaps, a descendant. Stephen, uh, write in and tell us. Ooh. Are you related to Minister Jean-Baptiste Colbert mm-hmm. of France? <gasps> Jean-Baptiste, that's so funny. His name is Jean-Baptiste because... Um, isn't that the name of the band leader on uh, Colbert's show now? Whoa. Lots of connections. Baptiste, maybe it's just Baptiste. His last name is Baptiste. I can't think of his, his full rain, name right now, but there's definitely a Baptiste in there at the very least. Oh, well, he's from New Orleans. Fan, or if you're Colbert, uh, bra- please tell us. write in. Yeah. <laughs> Let us know you're listening. <laughs> uh, so he was the, so Colbert was the Secretary of State for the French Navy, and he was the one who was kind of running this program. And uh, he was sending the women sort of as an incentive. He saw it as for an incentive for the men who had worked out their contracts. So they've spent the three years. And in order to convince them to stay, we'll get them to marry and they'll settle um, rather than return back to France. And there was a um, regiment, the Carignan Salier Very nice. Regiment, Very nice. Uh, who were recently demobilized. So France had, France had sent this regiment over. There were about 1,200 soldiers to fight the Iroquois. Um, the Iroquois were attacking a lot of the French settlements. Uh, understandably because the french were encroaching into their territory and they're defending their land so okay pretty legit um and so the this regiment was sent over to um, quash back. yeah um, qu- yes squash the the native resistance and it worked and most of them returned home but about 400 stayed so on top of already having far too many single men in the colony <laughs> now there's 400 extra soldiers just Hanging around. Hanging about. Yeah, which trouble (laughs) spells disaster. Uh, So Colbert is like, all right, we got to find some ladies for these men. Um, So these are all sort of the motives he has in the back of his mind to find these ladies and send them over. Um, All right. So the... The women were, quote, filles à marier, so marriageable women. Um, so they could have been married before. They could have children. That was fine. So they couldn't have been beauty queens. <laughs> but, <laughs> but they, they could, could have been fille de roi. Could be fille de roi. <laughs> and uh, they were considered royal wards. So almost like a ward of the state, right? Mm-hmm. They were under the protection of the crown. And uh, oh, I liked the uh, one of the articles talked about how, uh, so the king of France at the time did actually have three legitimate daughters and um i think somebody said at least six illegitimate daughters <laughs> um but these daughters of the king who were coming over um they were almost i don't know the way the way the are this particular article talked about it almost seemed like and i'm sure this is the language that the recruiters use to entice these ladies mm-hmm. like this is the king is asking you to do a special duty and you are you know the a king's daughter sent to go over and and populate this land and and do your work as a fertile young woman to <laughs> to further the french crowd and support the king and uh, i i bet you anything they uh, that was some of the tactics that they used to entice these ladies so of course if you're saying like oh a daughter of a king oh i might as well be a princess <laughs> i can choose to be a princess yes i can choose Excellent. to be a princess in terrible cold conditions <laughs> bearing like 15, 15 children <laughs> like 
we both went for 50. We did. That was weird. <laughs> so in sync. <sighs> exactly. So my heading for this section of the notes is prepping the gals. Yeah, I really <laughs> so like that. We had to get these ladies ready and send them over. Um, so the king, or rather his advisor, Colbert, took charge of recruiting, clothing, and paying the way for these royal wards to travel uh, even within France because they were coming from different areas of France. Mm-hmm. So they had to get to Normandy where they were being shipped out. Well, and you were talking about the um, the screening process and um, kind of one of the desirable, <laughs> the number one kind of um, uh, feature, I guess, that these gals should have was just a, a willingness to go <laughs> it was kind of the biggest thing good yeah that's, good. that's number one um well but just like yeah they're like okay well i mean it's it's still a tough sell i think to to get these ladies to go across so if you're willing to go that's a big point in your favor um but two they were really looking for they preferred um young women from the country um particularly young women who had lived on farms and were used to farming life because basically that's that's the life they would probably have once they arrived in new france uh and there were still some some girls who came from cities um but the preferred preferred gal was a country gal who was used to kind of hard labor on a farm and uh again as i think we mentioned before a lot of these young women came from orphanages and they were also good because all of these women brought up in orphanages would have been trained in all of the household um i guess arts and tasks and and labor and would have known what to do to care for for a household so they were yeah they kind of weren't as much as I think upper crust young ladies with a lot of money were unlikely to want to go anyway, they probably weren't necessarily the the best choices to go. So they're looking for healthy, um, sturdy young ladies. <laughs> I think this topic came up too when we discussed Susanna Moody. Ah, yeah. I was totally of, thinking that. Yeah, the British immigrants coming over were not prepared for the rough mm. life in the bush um, at all. And so we they found that the the French colonial colonial uh, <laughs> the French colonial administrators found that some of these women coming over were not prepared. So yeah, better basically the harder they had worked in France, the, the better. More, yeah, the more yeah. they had gotten used to really rough labor, the better they were going to fare in in Canada. Mm-hmm. So or in New France. Mm-hmm. Yes. So each lady was given a, an allowance. Um, so they received a hundred pounds. Ten pounds was a recruitment fee. Thirty pounds, so they could put together a modest trousseau for themselves. Mm-hmm. And we go into detail of what they were given, which is I really fun. like that. Yeah, yeah. Me too. And then sixty pounds covered her passage fee. Um, and they did the conversion, and in two thousands or in the year two thousands dollar, uh, it was worth about fifteen hundred. Okay, um, so you know. Not not a huge, huge. investment yeah, to get these these women over. It seems pr- a pretty economical solution to this, yeah this uh, thing. Um, so so do you mind if I just kind of jump in and say a little bit about uh, just my favorite detail was some of the things that they would be sent over yes, with the list of, the list yeah. Yeah. yeah and my favorite and kind of what when you think about it makes the most sense were items that um, were used a lot. Um, were kind of easily lost and were not easily uh, reproducible at home or in in the rural conditions of of New France. Uh, so a lot of the time they would be sent over with pins and needles. Those were very desirable items to come over with because yeah, you think about it, like yeah, you can't 
that's a tough thing to make on a farm in Quebec. So easy to lose. And so easy to lose in candlelight. They said we were working by candlelight or firelight. Exactly. And it was something like a thousand pins and like a hundred needles, which seems like a huge number. But... but and especially when you're working, sewing all of your clothes and blankets and textiles and everything yourself, yeah, you're using them every day. Yeah, and you want it to last at least a couple of years. Hopefully, your stock would last a while. So it absolutely makes sense. And I remember being taken aback and thinking it was a typo. It was like a thousand pins. Who needs a thousand pins? <laughs> well, if you're a feeder for a while, you would. You probably would. <laughs> you probably would. Exactly. Um, so. These women were, interestingly, taken from a couple of different areas in France. So they were recruited from uh, Paris and Rouen, the city of Rouen, and an area called La Rochelle, which I think is near the uh, ocean, but I'm not positive. And uh, so they were kind of taken from all these regions, but they were all northern, and they were usually um, urban areas or from the countryside surrounding these areas. And this links in later when we talk about the language effect that these women had. So keep that in mind for later on in the, in the episode. Um, and it was ship outfitters or merchants that were recruiting them. And we already talked about their age. So average age of 24. And, uh, so some of the screening process was they had to show their birth certificate. I thought it's a very modern yeah. <laughs> requirement. You know, like all of these girls have had right, their birth certificate. 1600s in France. Yeah. It was common enough to still have a intact birth certificate. But imagine okay. like maybe the orphanages girls that would be more likely because they've kind of been wards of the state for a while. And especially if they were given over to an orphanage at a very, very young age, maybe mm-hmm. that, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. And I thought, well, maybe a birth record at the local parish because oh, the birds would have been recorded Yeah, and it was, it was written birth certificate, but I mean, maybe it was just a proof of some kind of proof of birth, mm. you know, Regardless, but that took me aback as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they had to have a recommendation from their parish priest or a local magistrate stating that they were free to marry. So basically, you're not just running away from some other marriage, <laughs> some sketchy marriage in France. Um, and they had to be an appropriate age to give birth and, quote, healthy and strong for country work or that they at least had some aptitude for household chores. <laughs> <laughs> some aptitude for household some chores. Aptitude. Isn't that everybody? I, I mean, come on. Say, all of us can handle, you know, a few household chores. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I thought it was interesting, too, they talked about the demographics that in France, the custom was the, usually the oldest daughter in a family received a, as big a dowry as her family could afford to give her. Um, and that might be furniture or land or you know silver it could be articles it wouldn't necessarily just be cash um but then all the younger daughters were kind of left out in the cold mm. um so they didn't have a lot as a dowry and they were given what their families could scrape together after well, giving... it's kind of like the same issue with the um the first son in a, right. in a family gets all of the property and later sons are kind of thrown out into the world and have to go get professions but at least they could do that right i feel like we've talked about this before at least men if you were a second or a third or a fourth son you know even if you weren't inheriting much you could still go out and be a soldier or a minister or a lawyer or whatever else but women just had far fewer options it was the only you know career option was governess for the right kind of social level and that was the only respectable profession really for for women right or head to new france or head to new france (laughs) so there was this small window of opportunity Mm -hmm. for some of these ladies uh so a lot of the filles were younger daughters in in larger families Uh, so i thought that was kind of an interesting factoid um (laughs) so the king provided a dowry for these women because they wouldn't have had one in their families of origin um and this was 50 livres uh which is 
they have translated pounds, uh, which is the French French currency, in addition to their trousseau. So they would have all these items they brought in their trousseau, uh, plus the dowry. So some cash and some goods. Um, and some of them received even higher amounts. So some ladies were given 100 or 200 livres. Um, and that speaks to the fact that there were a few aristocratic or daughters of aristocratic families um, in this group of women. So mm-hmm. some of them coming over were sort of classy ladies or high right. class ladies. Well, and maybe from families who had um, kind of fallen on hard times financially, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. had a, a pedigree. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Uh, so I think some of those women were the ones getting the larger mm-hmm. dowries. And it might have been kind of a, a tactic to to convince some of these women to go you know, offer a larger dowry for you because of your social status. So those women, there were about 40 of them. They were called the daughters of quality. So the <laughs> fille de qualité. So they were from the upper classes. I bet they were snotty about it too. <laughs> Can you imagine crossing over with some of them? Ugh, they would form a clique oh, right? on the ship. They'd be the Ashleys. They would be. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies to any Ashleys listening. <laughs> um, so speaking of the journey over, um, at this time, that was a big deal because it would be anywhere from, depending on the weather and currents and the time of year and all of that it could be a uh, length of time uh, between six weeks or several months mm-hmm. and it would have been extremely unpleasant I always think about this just how at that for hundreds of years people traveling between the old world and the new world um, just how extremely unpleasant um, that journey was um, <laughs> these these young women kind of herded together on these on these ships and they would be probably sharing bunks with somebody they'd never met before, another young woman who I, you'd probably get pretty close to pretty fast. Um, and then, of course, the just the conditions. No fresh food or water for however long the crossing was. And uh, the expectation that the likelihood of somebody, at least one person probably dying on the way over from various diseases or, or malnutrition or whatever else, and that what that you could be one of those people just an extremely unpleasant journey so these I mean I'm just so impressed that these I always think like I don't know I feel like this is the difference between us again right like I feel like you might have if we were in these if we were two you know down and out young women in like Paris at the time and like we had these options I feel like you would have been much more likely to say like you know what why not? Yeah, let's, let's see what's <laughs> let's see what's over there. And I'm, you know, why not? I know the journey's going to be crappy, but like, hey, I'm adventurous and I can put up with a with a lot of stuff. And I would probably be like, mm, nope. nope. <laughs> let's just say that I am more of a camping person, and Dana there is more go. of a hotel person. Yes. <laughs> yes, I'm much more willing to put up with privation yes. and personal discomfort for uh, in exchange for a sense of adventure and i am you know i'm at the point in my life where i'm like i'm not ashamed of the fact that i prefer a hotel you will not find me in a tent and that's need to be (laughs) yes nothing to be ashamed of no no there's no reason that anyone has to force me into a tent (laughs) at this day and age and at this point in my life i'm not ashamed of that so who knows maybe at the time i would have you know if i was really down and out and just couldn't find a guy (laughs) and I didn't want to be a governess. (laughs) And then we could have a big debate about whose life, who would, you know, would have been better. Would diverge. Yes. Would be better off in new France? It's hard to say. Mm, Yeah. I don't know. 
Yes. Uh, one of the stats I read was that about 20% of the Fille du Roi did not survive the crossing. So it may 20%? have been. 20%? Yeah. And that was only mentioned in one source. So I don't know how reliable that number is. But like you said, at least one lady would die. It might have been quite a few uh, women Probably would, would have been me. <laughs> if I had chosen to Dang go. scurvy. You're all <laughs> hearty. And I would have been like, oh. Yeah, dying of scurvy. Dying of scurvy. On the oh. journey over. That would have been me. I would keep you alive, Dana. <gasps> thanks, Heather. Scrounge for lines. <laughs> oh, thanks. Smuggle them into our bunk. Oh, that's great. I thought you were going to say smuggle them into our bosom. <laughs> Hide <laughs> limes in our bosom. <laughs> use my bosom to smuggle them to our bunk. <laughs> I like this. And then maybe when we get to the new world, we can find a pair of brothers and like have oh. adjoining farms. Oh, I like this idea a lot, right? Dana. And then our 30 combined children could yeah. all be friends that's right i feel like again you'd probably have more kids than me i'd be like oh she's a failure with like seven children and <laughs> heather get- over there has like 15 children and they're all hearty you get no government pension for your like, paltry seven children <laughs> my paltry seven 400 livres a year for our like 20 <laughs> or brood of 20 we're jumping ahead but i really do like that <laughs> Amazing. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. So I wanted to introduce you to a, a lady named Madame Bourdin, who probably had like the worst job in history. She basically <laughs> had to supervise all these ladies. I know. That would have been crossing. awful. <laughs> thought, oh, my God. This poor woman. I hope she was well paid, but I suspect she was not. Um, so she... Uh, the quote was that she was kept busy during the voyage <laughs> because some of these women were uh, not, it was like, not, had not been raised properly. <laughs> so they gave her some trouble. I can only imagine the squabbles between some of these women going across. Um, I mean, it's difficult conditions and yes. you're thrown in with all these other girls that you've never met before. And like, it's unpleasant and you don't know what you're going to. And I'm sure tempers were not great mm. i can yeah, yeah. it just be seasick oh yeah and i think oh that would have been me i would yeah. have been heaving yeah. over the side yeah. of the boat Ugh. and i i also think of the the sort of pseudo competitive nature of this as well mm, right and yeah. we're going to this country that's true to, to select a husband and so while there are we're likely far more men you know you wouldn't be competing for the men necessarily you never know, right? I mean, there are levels of men. <laughs> there are. <laughs> so, so that might have overlaid some of it too, right? Yeah, that's I can see true. Sort of like competition, you know, unnecessary competitive nature in mm-hmm. these ladies. So, you know, who knows? Maybe I'm sure lots of strong friendships were forged, mm-hmm. and I can picture a few catfights. Yeah. Erupting. <laughs> um, just the whole thing, just the whole situation, very fraught. Yes. Yes, indeed. High stakes. Uh, all right. So the the next heading in my notes is ladies arrive on the scene. <laughs> She's got some great headings in her notes for this episode, I have to say. We got boots on the ground. <laughs> boots on the ground. Boots on the ground. So September 22nd, 1663, the first group of 36 filles de roi land. For shipment and, arrives. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And uh, I have to mention there's this shipment amazing. Shipment of uteri. Sh- oh, God. That's just so accurate Sorry. and terrible. <laughs> um, so there's this great painting that is featured in every article <laughs> and i don't know if you remember this dana do you remember it from your history textbook no it wasn't familiar oh. to me but i love it it's yeah. the one it, i think i know yeah. the one you're talking about right with the like slightly snotty looking girls yes. coming off the boat and yes. all these like men in like Ugh. long wigs looking much more like put together than i'm guessing the men of new france looked at right. that time period all right. in there like cavalier looking and like they're all just kind of scoping out these girls and <laughs> They're ogling without trying to look like they're ogling. Yeah. Okay. I'm totally going to use that image for our like 
podcast. I, I was hoping you were because it's in every article, and I distinctly remember it from my history textbook. Yeah, in whatever year. I'm pretty sure I saw it on like Wikipedia, even so, it's going to be yes. like Wikisource, so it's going to be free to use, and I'm totally going to use that. So watch out for that, people, You'll and that means it. you have to go to our website to see <laughs> this awesome uh, painting that we'll use for the the image for this episode. <laughs> I'm going to take this painting to task because there is no way that it is at all historically accurate. It drives me crazy when people do this. So it's uh, and I don't mean to you know take down um eleanor fortescue brickdale the canadian artist who painted this um but uh you know i i feel like maybe she stretched the facts a bit here um we are talking about two different paintings oh are we yeah we are oh interesting Hmm. so the one that i was just that i'm thinking of is uh yes all these very sort of aristocratic ladies they're wearing pearls huge dresses (laughs) with these like flawless ruffles and they have these gorgeous curls in their hair and and oh they're coming in with this air of aristocratic you know expectation and all these men with these long wigs are greeting them and i'm thinking none of this would have looked anything like this you just finished this horrible sea crossing and they're literally coming like up the steps of the dock uh, right in this painting and uh, you know no one would have looked like this at all so there's another one that and now I don't know which one we're going to use, oh, but there's another one here and it is kind of similar. But it's creepier. Um, the men it are is like, creepier. The men are They're ogling, ogling a bit. More. But it's, it's much more like cavalier looking. I agree. Um, anyway, maybe maybe I'll try to use both somehow, but they're both pretty great, I have to say. We'll at least link to both of them. There you go. I mean, they're both. in both of them have been used multiple times in right. all of the articles that we've looked at, so they're not hard to find. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I I can only imagine the bedraggled state you would arrive at New yeah. France, in, and I'm sure you would clean up before you. Yeah, set, set I was picturing the like all these girls, like as they're about to disembark, they're like pinching each other's cheeks and like biting I don't know, lips, biting helping lips. each other with their yeah. hair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> me too. Um, so when they arrived, uh, they were given, or they would have been assigned their hope chest, uh, (laughs) pulled out of storage in the bottom of the ship and they were given a whole list of items. So a comb, two quaffs, which was a type of hood, uh, one made of taffeta and the other made of gauze, which I'm not sure how a gauze hood would help you in the new world, but (laughs) okay. Um, a belt, a pair of hose, a pair of shoes, a pair of gloves, a bonnet, shoelaces, four set of laces, uh, for I assume a corset mm. they didn't specify and um, all of these were difficult to find in uh, yeah because they're world. all like manufactured items right. that yeah would right. be hard to find in and we described the sewing supplies. Um, they got a thimble, um, some thread, scissors, knives, uh, fine cloth, this sort of thing. So you would pick up your whole trousseau. Um, and the first group landed at Quebec City. So there's this sort of enduring joke in Quebec that the women in Quebec City are prettier than the women downriver in, say, Montreal or <laughs> the other cities because the Fidoroa landed there first and all the prettiest of them got picked up by the Frenchmen there. <laughs> so the further away you got down <laughs> right. the river, down river, away from Quebec City... <laughs> that's kind of mean but funny yeah <laughs> yes um and so 560 um, over the years of the Fidoua stayed in Quebec City 133 were sent down to Montreal and only 75 crept into Trois-Rivières <laughs> so who knows what they say about the women of Trois-Rivières oh god um and these women would receive room and board when they arrived in Canada so they were put up in these kind of dormitory style um, houses usually supervised by nuns um, or other women of, well, I guess there were so few, they would probably all be probably nuns. nuns yeah. um, and they would always be under the care of a chaperone. So mm-hmm. if they hadn't already learned practical skills, they were taught some skills and, and how to do chores in the new world. 
So the Fidoroa would be living in these dormitories and the men would basically show up looking for, hey, I'm looking for a wife. I heard they're here. One thing I have to say, though, that um, I was I was pleasantly surprised to read about was that, I don't know, I kind of had this impression from old high school history classes that these girls would show up and like kind of like like a meat market like right on the dock they're all you know yes. they're all kind of choosing guys and guys are choosing them and they're all just happening up willy-nilly like, willy-nilly and like all of a sudden they're married um <laughs> but I had that impression too yeah it's which terrible. is the more you, when you think about it you're like that doesn't actually make sense so thankfully the uh, historical record points out that on average uh, it would be four or five months that these that these girls would live um, in the convents or in these dormitories or wherever else they were um, before they would be married. So they did have, I mean, I feel like that's decently reasonable. Right. They have I a little agree. time to look around and actually get to know a bunch of guys and, and suss out like who they might be actually <laughs> interested in and who was the best prospect and who they might have some kind of a connection with if that was important <laughs> at all. Um, so I was glad to read that. I was as well. And they could refuse any offer of marriage. Right. So they weren't forced into it mm-hmm. um and a few of the few actually did return to france uh, because they didn't find anyone or decided decided Which, not to stay in the country that's another thing i was glad to read because again mm-hmm. i feel like i had this vague impression that like they were just forced into marriage with some stranger i mean you know more or less these were kind of people largely unknown to them but it just makes me feel better knowing they had several months um on average that they would spend looking for the right person and also they weren't forced into anything and if they genuinely didn't find someone they wanted to to take a chance on they could go back and that was fine (laughs) oh and the other thing we should point out too is that yes engagements would form fairly quickly Mm -hmm. um they would go before the the priest or whatever and get a whatever it was called um stating that they would be married and then like 30 days later they would get married um but uh not infrequently engagements would be broken off and this was not looked down on at mm-hmm. all which is good that's good to know that like even you know okay so you form this relationship and then kind of realize that okay now this one isn't quite going to work out and there was no social stigma about breaking that off and maybe trying to find somebody else so all of this has relieved me quite a bit to be honest about <laughs> what this experience was like for these women i feel exactly the same it was it I was so pleasantly surprised by how much more progressive. Yeah, much more civilized was. than I thought. Right, yeah. than I had anticipated. Yeah, I just thought of all these ferocious and like horny men just waiting <laughs> on the dock. on these like, poor, like, pick up 14-year-old girls. Prettiest 16-year-olds. Yeah, yeah. it's just horrible. But, but God, it was not quite that bad. And they did, um, I did read that a few of the women married within days of arrival. So there were <laughs> did happen. Yep. very quick uh, matchups. But a few of them even went so far as to get married and then ended up deciding to mm-hmm. dissolve the marriage um and even that wasn't frowned upon even if you decided to break it off after the full marriage had happened so yeah it was it was um you know a little more less or low stress mm-hmm. <laughs> than or low stakes lower stakes than than uh i had been led to believe so this is good oh yeah so i really liked the process of selecting the man and so i wanted to talk about a few of the details of that yeah. so as we said uh these women were given the opportunity to get to know the man a little bit before um deciding to marry them and uh, so the men would come to the, the wherever these women were being housed and they would sit down and one of the articles even mentioned sort of a speed dating style um uh, process of selection <laughs> so if you would have a few minutes with each man and you kind of rotate tables and i thought oh my gosh that's amazing um and one article, and I don't know if this is true or not, talked about how there would be three rooms, and one of them, the administrators in charge were 
filtering women into each of the three rooms based on some criteria like attractiveness or age or something and then when the men showed up he would like send the men to whichever room he thought would oh my god i don't know you know i I can only assume based on age but i'm not sure so i i do not know if that is historically credible i feel like that yeah i mean we don't know one way or the other but um i just feel like there were probably a whole bunch of different methods like they were trying different ways to kind of match people up Right. right so you could kind of almost see that like I don't know, almost online dating-esque (laughs) methods of trying to, okay, well, maybe they'll hit it off because of this reason. Maybe they'll hit it off because of this reason. Um, And that's so funny. The speed dating thing, that's hilarious. God, like so many centuries. There's nothing new under the sun. The the process of meeting someone. So the futur roi were allowed to ask all kinds of questions about what the man was like, what his life was like. And the most common questions were very practical. It was, uh, do you have a home of your own? Because having <laughs> his own home established was extremely important. Mm-hmm. And the head nun running this, uh, her name was Marie de l'Incarnation, uh, and she sent out advice to the men coming to find a wife. And she said, make sure you settle, you set up your own um, habitation uh, before you arrive, because that's what our women are looking for the most. And so the smart guys, the smart guys would were do that. setting up their own homesteads first. Um, and the women were even asking things like, how many blankets do you have? <laughs> like, I going to be warm you know, what, <laughs> like what are, yeah what are the conditions like in your home uh how much money do you have what's your profession i mean those are all just sort mm-hmm. of basic things you want answered uh but i like that they were getting down to the nitty-gritty like yeah. how many blankets are we talking here <laughs> sir <laughs> i'm bringing a thousand pins to this relationship how many blankets are you bringing what can you offer in return <laughs> um so all of this to say this um this was a very successful program and by and large these women were matched up and and found somebody that they agreed to marry um as we said some of them returned and were allowed to return but that was really a minority most mm-hmm. of them found yeah. somebody and settled and it all happened very quickly and so um the this this nun that you had just referred to mm-hmm. uh, Marie de l'incarnation that was terrible whatever <laughs> um she has this great she wrote in a letter to somebody um in uh, october of 1665 um she writes the hundred girls sent over by the king this year have only just arrived and already they are almost all accommodated accommodated <laughs> he will send another 200 next year and even more in the years following in proportion to the need he will also send men to marry withstanding those who are in the army I don't quite get that line, but whatever. Uh, And then she goes on to say, truly, it is an amazing thing to see how the country is becoming populated and multiplying. (laughs) So these ladies, they, they found somebody to hook up with and these kids got down to business. (laughs) They really did. Oh my gosh. I have a stat from 1671 where Jean Talon, who's a name we all kind of recognize from Canadian history, uh, was running the colony and he wrote to the king that six to 700 babies had been born that year. I mean, they only sent 800 women total in this whole program. So the fact that that many babies were showing up that, uh, that quickly, these midwives must've been so busy. I, that and that made me I knew you too, would how many midwives could there have yeah, been in the true. country? There I, could not have been that many. I bet these women were delivering babies for each they other were helping all each the other time. out all the time. And they Which, all had very a lot of experience very quickly. Very quickly. All of these women were basically midwives uh, like yeah. 10 years down the road because you would have had to. And th- now that makes me want to time travel back then. Oh my God. Offer my services. And I'm just like, mm, I'm oh, so God, good no. where I am. <laughs> I'm so good where I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, 
Um, and the program was so successful that within um, a decade or two later, the officials were saying, okay, actually st- stop the <laughs> women enough. because yeah. we have enough. And they were concerned that the daughters produced by all these uh, marriages needed, needed husbands men to marry. Oh so God. they said, stop the flow of women from France because we don't want to outcompete our local girls. <laughs> so. Well, and this is really, I, this, it speaks to how successful this program was because mm-hmm. it really was just a 10 year period. And as we said, um, in the end, just kind of about 800 women went out and it was so successful that after 10 years, it was like, okay, enough, we've got enough. <laughs> and the population just, it exploded. exploded there yeah. was an increase of like 167 percent or something yeah. like that is i think the statistic i saw earlier um just babies everywhere and um the av- i mean they were having uh, you know we were joking about these numbers but that's kind of like typical to have at least six children mm-hmm. um, many of them were having more than 10 um there were incentives as we we kind of already mentioned I, what was it like if you had more than 10 it was 300 livre a year for the family if it was more than 12 it was 400 livre a year and then it would increase after that so there were people having like 15 babies <laughs> yeah absolutely there, there was even an incentive to marry young to get the yeah, baby right. making started faster so uh boys who marry at the age of 20 years or less and two girls of 16 years and less will be paid 20 pounds each on their wedding day <laughs> kind of object to that one <laughs> that's, uh, yeah that was that's a little a scary one. little creepy um and bachelors were penalized so you had fishing or hunting or trapping rights taken away if you were a bachelor to to incentivize you into marrying wow so they were really trying to paper pushing babies pushing the government it. was really pushing yes. babies yes absolutely <laughs> <laughs> um and a quote from uh monsieur jean talon says he was writing to the king in 1670 the girls sent last year are married and almost all of them are with child or have had children already a sign of the fertility of this country <laughs> <laughs> and there, there's another great line talking about how um all these babies as they as they grew apparently people were remarking on how attractive and how and tall. tall and sturdy and attractive <laughs> all of these Quebecois um, children of the the daughters of the king were just you know great stock <laughs> I love that quote it was uh, Marie de Lincoln oh she's great who, yeah I, I like her. her quotes yeah and she was saying that she was like it's, it's really shocking how many <laughs> good-looking babies are being born I thought that was really great <laughs> yes so it was uh, 1673 that the last shipment of fee were sent and the program was ended uh, the population was now up to 6,700 people, which we said is a huge increase. You huge were right. It was 168% increase, oh, increase in those 11 years. Yeah. And um, areas that were virtually uninhabited before were now um, settled or becoming more Communities settled. Were springing, yeah, up springing up everywhere. Up right and, left. and this tradition of large families, while originally subsidized, continued long after the subsidy was ended. And, and French-Canadian culture, up until very, very recently, mm-hmm. like only a few decades ago, was known for having very large families. Mm-hmm. And that was the cultural expectation. So that continued for centuries yeah. after the Fille de Roi. Well, and that kind of leads us into the the impact, the lasting historical impact. I know mm-hmm. you had a little bit on this uh, to talk about, Heather. I do. I do. So, um, you can imagine 20 years after this program, the children of the Fidoroa are all, um, you know, coming of age, growing up, marrying themselves, and the demographics are completely changed. Um, so the estimate is that about 4,459 children were born as a result of this program, which amazing. is huge numbers. Um, and um, so their descendants number, like we were saying, in the thousands or millions mm-hmm. um, in North America. And there's a whole bunch of... Uh, 
famous names, big names mm-hmm. that uh, can trace their roots back to this. And one of the most recent big names in the news has been Hillary Clinton. So yeah. there was an article about how she can trace her ancestry back through one specific Fijikawa, but there were actually three others in her family background. Um, and there was a great local reference mm-hmm. because they were talking about, well, but Hillary Clinton is American. Well, how did, uh, how did that happen? You know, so <laughs> they were saying, well, her French relatives would have come through Windsor, Ontario into Detroit. There you so, go. <laughs> <laughs> the future of were coming down through our our little town itself. They spread everywhere, spread across the continent. <laughs> and uh, so they were saying people like Prime Minister Trudeau, Celine Dion, um, Madonna, you know, I think was another yes, name, right? Absolutely, there were all kinds of celebrities and politicians well, that can link. And we were kind of saying before, we really have no idea at all, but there is a decent chance, at least, that both you and I have have Fidoroh. In our God, in I don't our, have that in my bloodline. In our ancestry, um, um, yeah, they were prolific, and and their descendants, as you said, they numbered in the they number in the millions now, which is just the impact uh, of these women yeah. on North America can't be overstated. They made, made a really big difference. They certainly did, especially um, genetically. There are a lot mm-hmm. of genealogical societies where we found this information, um, the websites we were researching. So there are a lot of sites out there. If you're curious, if you have um, uh, a connection to a Fidoroa ancestor, you can go to any one of these websites and look up mm-hmm. um, your family name and trace it back. So, so if you know be... you have um, French heritage, whether yes. it's French Canadian or or you know, just French North American heritage, um, it might be worth looking into to see whether you have a in your background. <laughs> well, speaking of your language, uh, your <laughs> French, Dana, another impact that the Fidoroa had was that they standardized uh, the French used in New France. So up to this point, because everyone was so scattered, um, local dialects were causing problems um, for administrators, for you know people traveling, um, and for communication with native groups as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because everyone was so spread out, they were just sort of falling into their own patois. And uh, so because all these women came from a pretty small area in northern France, they all spoke very similar um, French. And because they were talking about it, because a mother has such a strong role in transmitting language to her children, mm-hmm. almost all of the children of the Fidoroa would speak her type of French. And so now when they arrive, almost all of the children in the colony are now speaking a much more standardized language. So basically just like smoothed out mm-hmm. the language issues in the Well, and I'm guessing colony. that the because there is a very distinct difference between Quebec Correct. Uh, the Quebec accent and way of speaking as opposed to Parisian French. And I'm wondering if, if Northern French dialect and accent is closer to um, the Quebec hmm. sound. That's my, I don't actually know. So somebody, yeah. if you know about this, write in and tell us, cause I don't actually know, but I'm speculating that yes. maybe the Quebec um, uh, accent is closer to the, uh, the Northern French accent. Nice. I would like to know that too, mm-hmm. oh, linguist listener. Yes, please write in. <laughs> so pretty recently in 2013, we had the 350th anniversary of the first voyage of the Fidoroa. So we, we missed celebrating that uh, just it. by a few years. Oh, but uh, So it's been 354 years <laughs> since they made their voyage. Uh, but, you know, they've they've contributed a lot to the 
the colony and then the country mm -hmm. and to all many of our backgrounds. Yeah. So uh, you know, the impact is huge. Well, and it's so I think you know I think we're about wrapped up with our facts for this mm -hmm. episode, and I just kind of wanted to wrap up a little bit and and stay tuned because we will have an episode upcoming, and I'll get into that in a second uh, where we'll I'll go into this a little bit more. But I had an opportunity this past week that I'm still really buzzing about. It was <laughs> absolutely incredible. Uh, I work for an organization that is um, that is a legal nonprofit, and we work with people who represent themselves in court. And we had this incredible opportunity to go to the Supreme Court and participate in a hearing that was happening this past Tuesday involving a self-represented litigant. And that's all kind of beside the point. It's fascinating anyway. I would say go check out uh, representingyourselfcanada.com for more information on that. Um, but the main point here is that it was just this amazing experience to me as a Canadian and, and also as a woman, a Canadian woman, to go and sit through a hearing at the Supreme Court. And we were lucky enough that all nine uh, Superior Court justices were there mm -hmm. and most exciting of all um the chief justice of canada beverly mclaughlin was sitting right where she sits in the center of the the intimidating panel of black robed <laughs> justices at the front of the imagine. court oh it was just it was such a sight heather oh my god it was <laughs> such a sight um and she was she was fabulous and and i just want to quickly point out that beverly mclaughlin is the very first female chief justice of canada a uh, very big deal she's been around for a long time she's had her post for quite a few years now she was appointed by um, uh, Cretchen, I think I read. And I believe I've heard that she is retiring in the next year or so, but she's had quite an impressive career. She's done a lot of really neat things. We just, our organize, we, we were all very impressed with her, uh, with her reactions to what was going on. And we were very impressed with her understanding of the issues. And she was just very cool. And I was reading a little bit about her and it was just striking me like where we were doing this very Canadian topic this week for this episode and I had this very Canadian experience of, of going to the Supreme Court and it just it's gotten me really kind of excited about being a Canadian woman and thinking about all of the ways that that women have contributed to our society in Canada from these amazing 800 ladies who came over <laughs> a few hundred <laughs> years ago to help establish a population here of, of Europeans. And right through to this incredible woman who is now holding one of the most important and highest, most respected positions in our country. And it just, it's, it's, I don't know, it's got me feeling patriotic and, <laughs> oh. and feminist and just like really <laughs> proud uh, to be a Canadian woman. Um, so we're going to give a little bit of a teaser. What we're thinking is, you know, if you, if you are not a Canadian, uh, you may not know, hopefully if you are a Canadian, you do know that this year, 2017 is the um, uh, 150th anniversary of our um, dominion of Canada coming into existence, which happened in 1867, of course, Confederation. Uh, so Canada Day, of course, is coming up on July 1st. And we have planned a special uh, Canada Day themed Canadian lady episode. <laughs> so look for that. And, and we've decided that Beverly McLaughlin, you're going to hear more about her in that episode. And we're going to go into her biography and give you a little bit more about what she's done along with quite a few other Canadian ladies. And so look for that first week of July. Um, we're excited to start adding to that list. So I'm just all fired up about Canadian ladies. <laughs> and we'll be able to trace the history of how our country has offered women opportunities at first based on their their fertility and you know their skills in <laughs> yeah, mothering and domestic, good point, Heather. domestic arts. I mean, those are very traditionally 
female roles, but it's moved now and you're seeing women offered opportunities or seizing opportunities in all fields. Based on their capabilities and their their skills and their intellect and their passions. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, we'll see a lot of change, very positive change. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, there are a lot of great Canadian ladies out there. And actually, I'm going to go so far as to say, um, anybody, if you have our listeners, if you have any ideas for ladies or um, topics in Canadian history related to women's history that you'd like us to cover for this for this episode, where it's going to be kind of a list episode. So we're looking for a number of different things to talk about. So if you've got an idea, please let us know. Uh, mm-hmm. We definitely want to hear about that. And on that note, I will say, I just want to give a quick shout out. Um, the um, Our episode today, the Fille du Roi, uh, I feel like we did have them on the list previously, but it was also suggested uh, by a couple of different people. Mm-hmm. So this is definitely a topic that that multiple people have wanted to hear about. So I want to give a shout out to our friend Janice who suggested this episode and uh, my good friend, Sarah, who she's suggested multiple episodes at this point, And we really appreciate it because Sarah has really great ideas for episodes. So keep them coming. So thank you, Janice and Sarah for suggesting the feed raw as an episode topic. All right. Well, I think we're uh, about set for this week's episode. So thanks once again for listening. As always, we'll be posting our resources that we used for this episode along with the link on our website. Uh, you can find us on uh, yesterladies.com. You can also write to us uh, through Gmail, yesterladies at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash yesterladies. And you can find us on Twitter where our handle is yesterladies. So as always, please write in. We'd love to hear from people. Um, if you've got topic suggestions, either Canadian suggestions specifically or whatever topics in general, we'd love to get those. Um, so once again, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye.